prints, and you can get it on any number of things from if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict? Like any good preacher who intends to use a quote in his sermon, I uh, tried to find out who first said it. Give credit where credit is due, if you will. And I went to the most reputable of all sources, Google. And I found nothing. I found lots of products to buy, but I found no uh, attribution. I did find this. In one of his books, former UCLA uh, men's basketball coach, legendary coach John Wooden wrote, quote, if I were ever prosecuted for my religion, I truly hope there would be enough evidence to convict me. So that's what we'll go with. John Wooden said it first. Either that or he changed it up a little bit uh, so that he could put it in a book. Let's go. Oftentimes we think of faith and belief as private matters. Or if not private matters, personal matters. To look at you today, I don't know which sports teams you favor. None of y'all wore jerseys today, so I don't know. To look at you, I don't know which TV shows you're watching and are obsessing about. To look at you, I don't know what political party you ascribe to. While not matters of belief as it applies to Jesus, there's certainly personal aspects about us. And the same can be true for our capital F, faith. To look at you, to look at anyone, I can't tell by their outward appearance whether or not they are a Christian. And so we ask questions like, if you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict? At the root of this question is that somehow, some way, our faith should make us different. Having faith in Jesus, being a follower of Jesus, should cause us to live differently. The assumption here is that there's something about the Christian faith, there's something about the Christian life, that when authentically lived, we can tell by looking at your life if you are a follower of Jesus. Now, there are two ways to ask this question. One way, how it can often come across, but hopefully not what we're going to do here, is judgmentally. There are ways that Christians can talk about living out their faith that, as the spoke, that has as the spoken or unspoken conclusion that if you aren't doing these things, then you don't really have faith. Or that my faith is better than yours. Or that I'm a better Christian than you. We can turn acts of faith into weapons that we hurl at other people. I was reading a book this week uh, when the story was told of um, the, one of the characters' fathers who was a carpenter. And he was taking him uh, to work and uh, he was fixing houses. And he said to his son, here is this wall and it needs to be justified. The wall was crooked. And in carpentry, to justify a wall means to make it straight. Oftentimes there are crooked, uh, we feel crooked. We feel like we're off kilter. In order to justify ourselves, we hurl things at other people. We judge things about other people. We make ourselves feel straighter by pointing out the crookedness in others instead of looking at ourselves, which is not what we aim to do here. See, I like the way Coach Wooden put it. If I were ever prosecuted for my religion, I truly hope there would be enough evidence to convict me. 
For him, the statement wasn't about anyone else other than himself. There's a way in which we can ask this question of ourselves and others that is not meant to be a judgment, but is meant to encourage us in ways that we are already living out our faith. That can call us to look at the choices we are making and see if they are in line with the values that we hold. And we can do this together. This question, if we were on trial for, our, for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict, is not meant to be a wall that we use to justify ourselves, but a mirror to help us honestly look at ourselves. This theme of what it means to live out your faith is played out in Paul's letters. So in the first decades after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, Paul went about the Greco-Roman world telling Gentiles, that is the non-Jews, about Jesus. And he started churches. In order to help those early churches stay resilient and grow, Paul wrote letters to them that settled disputes, that reminded them about Jesus, and told them about how what God was doing in Jesus Christ would mean for their lives. So Paul writes one of these letters to the church in Colossae. Paul's letter to the Colossians is a relatively short book. It's only four chapters long. It's one of Paul's shorter letters to one of his churches. But he accomplishes a lot in a very short amount of time. In the third chapter, he talks about what Jesus has to do with our lives. I'm going to read the whole thing, and we're going to take it in chunks, uh, because Paul is one of those writers who does a whole lot in a few sentences, unlike me, who does very little in a lot of sentences. I thought that was funny. I thought that was good. Anyways, to Paul. Colossians chapter 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you, will, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So Paul immediately begins 
by locating our reason for doing good and living a righteous life. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your new life is now hidden in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We live a righteous life because of Jesus. We have been raised with Jesus, so we are to set our hearts on the things of Jesus. That is, things that are heavenly, things that are eternal, things that are of God. Paul makes explicit the connection between Christ's eternal life with God and our lives that are lived out now in Christ. Paul says, it's like a heavenly amen or something, I don't know. (laughs) Paul says that we have died and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. I want to flesh this out because it's about to come into play in what Paul says next. And one of the earliest, one of the things the earliest church believed about baptism was that in some respects it was a literal death. You were immersed in water and shared in Christ's death. And as you were pulled out of the water, you were raised to new life in Christ, just as Christ was raised from the dead. So when Paul says that you have died, he's not speaking metaphorically, or at least not in the way that we mean metaphor. Clearly, people hadn't literally died. That would have made some news in ancient Rome. And who would he be writing to? But for Paul, what died in baptism... The self that died in baptism was the most important part of the person, was the essence of the person. It was the thing inside that mattered more than the thing outside. Whatever it was that made you, you, Paul said, died and has been raised to new life in Jesus. The closest approximation I can make for this is when we talk about giving our life over to Jesus. People will talk about conversion as the moment they gave their life to Christ. And Paul would say, if you have given your life to Christ, that life is no longer yours because you've given it to Jesus. So if you've given your life to Christ, then set your mind on the things of Christ because it's not our life anymore. It's Jesus's. You gave it to him. Paul continues, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on your new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator." Paul says that if your earthly self has died, then it's dead. And so are the things that go with it. Anger, rage, malice, slander, lying, sexual immorality. These are the things that you have put to death in your baptism. But let's bring it back to our way of saying it. If if you have given your life to Jesus, it's his. And does a Jesus life include lying? Did Jesus lie? Does a Jesus life include slander? Did Jesus slander anyone? Does a Jesus life include sexual immorality? Was Jesus sexually immoral? You've given your life to Jesus. It's time to put away the things that aren't a part of a Jesus life. Um, I read this book this week. 
I did some reading this week. Uh, this is a different book than the book about the carpentry and the justification. Um, it's called Convicted. Only randomly does it have the same name as the sermon series we're, we're in the middle of. Um, two really don't have anything to do with one another. Uh, Brenda gave it to me. Um, credit where credit's due. And it's about um, a police officer and an innocent man that the police officer put in prison uh, because he didn't do things, shall we say, by the book. Um, Andrew Collins was the police officer uh, who was so sure that the people he was catching um, were, were drug dealers and drug offenders that he would cut corners. Um, he would, um, yeah, cut corners. You can read the book about all the things he did. And he, he is trying to make a bust and Jamil, Jamil McGee um, gets caught at the wrong place at the wrong time. He asks for a ride from a guy he doesn't know. The guy turns out to have uh, crack cocaine on him with the intent to sell. And Jamil McGee gets um, arrested for it and spends three years in jail. Th three three years in jail um, because of that. Jamil McGee goes to prison and is um, filled with anger at the man who put him there, though he was innocent. He gets in fights in prison, um, and he's not fighting the people that he's actually fighting. In his mind, he's fighting Andrew Collins, who put him in prison. Andrew Collins eventually gets caught doing all the, thing, all the bad things he's been doing, um, smuggling money, um, cheating on police reports, and uh, goes to prison. And he is filled with guilt. He is filled with... Um, and, and actually what put him there more than anything else was pride. Was pride in uh, thinking that he was a super cop, that he needed to be a super cop for the community, ironically named Benton Harbor, um, and for his family. Um, for the narrative to move forward, both of these men had to put things down. They had to let things die. Jamil had to let his anger die. He had to give it away. He couldn't keep carrying it or else his life was never going to move forward. Andrew Collins had to put his pride down. He had to put this notion of being a super cop down. He had to put this notion of being self-sufficient, of providing for himself, of um, being, being the man. He had to put that down in order for his life to move forward. So we set aside all these things. We too have things we need to put down. Paul would say, we have things we need to put down because it's not our life anymore, it's Jesus' life. And in order for it to be Jesus' life, we've got to put some things down. But once we have set those things aside, these behavior, these ways of living, these divisions, what are we to pick up? What are we to do? Next, Paul begins saying something positively about how we are to live uh, in our new self, how we are to live a Jesus life. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. 
Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now we have a list of what it means to live a Jesus life. And it means clothing ourselves in the attitudes and attributes that marked Jesus' life. Be compassionate. Be kind. Be humble. Be gentle. Be patient. Forgive. Love. <laughs> Many years later, um, after both men got out of federal prison, um, Andrew had a, a, an 18-month sentence that he served. Jamil got out because... All of, Andrew, all of the people that Andrew put into prison with falsified police reports were, their convictions were overturned. Um, so a couple years late down the road, they both meet at a block party sponsored by a church. Um, and uh, Jamil was not very happy with Andrew. A um, couple years later, they meet again because Jamil is a part of this jobs training program that Andrew's church uh, started and sponsored. And so Andrew winds up being his mentor and advisor in the jobs program. And I got to back up a little bit. In prison, Jamil put down his anger. He gave it to God. He read scripture and he heard God say, let it go. This is my fight. This is mine. I got this. And Jamil put down his anger. And so when Jamil met Andrew, for Andrew to be his mentor in the jobs training program, um, Andrew uh, said, as he did to many, to many of the people he met, if, if I, I was a bad cop, I did things poorly. If I did anything that hurt you, I am sorry. And Jamil's sitting there saying, you don't remember me? You don't remember who I am? And he said, I'm, I'm Jamil McGee. And a light bulb went off in Andrew's mind. And he just said, I am so, so sorry. And Jamil said, ain't a thing. I gave it to God years ago. I forgive you. It's all good. That's a Jesus life. That's something God can do when we clothe ourselves in Christ. This month we are going to take a look at what it means to live a Jesus life. John Wesley, who founded the United Methodist Church, had three simple rules for Christian living. They were do no harm, do good, and attend to the ordinances of God. If we did those three things, then our lives would provide enough evidence to convict us of being a Christian. So for the next three weeks, we are going to look at those three things. In, in this convicted story, um, they each had to do those three things in order to, to reach that beautiful conclusion. And I know I undersold that beautiful conclusion. We're going we're gonna to get there, trust me. Um, do no harm. Jamil had to let go of his anger, his need for revenge, his need for vengeance. He had to stop fighting. Andrew had to confess and admit wrongdoing. Andrew reports that um, any time he had an encounter with someone he put away wrongly, he didn't try and justify himself. He admitted wrongdoing. And it disarmed the people, the person who was coming to him. They had to do good. 
Jamil had to actively forgive and reconcile with Andrew. We think of forgiveness often as passive. It is an active activity. Active activity. I don't know if I like that. But you, you're good. Andrew had to um, begin to make a difference in his community through being a part of a job training program, through being a part of um, good works within the community. And both of them needed to go to church. The final piece that comes at the end of the book uh, involves them both being in church. So I know that I do harm when I'm honest with myself. I know in, in, in things I do, in words I say, I know that I do harm. I know I fail to do good sometimes. I know there are moments when I could do good and for myriad reasons. I'm too busy. I don't have enough. I fail to do it. And there are things that God tells me to do, the ordinances of God, that I fail to attend to. This month, I want us to hold a mirror up to ourselves. This mirror is not for me to stand behind and look at what you're seeing. This mirror is not for anyone else other than you to look at your life and to say, how am I doing? Not because in our pride we want to have a cool, dramatic story testimony that we can write about, but because we want Jesus to live through us. We want to clothe ourselves in the things of Jesus. Because it is in putting on Jesus that we can find peace. We can find fulfillment. We can find salvation. We can find joy. We can find life. And we want that. I want to read a passage from this book, towards the end of this book. Really, everything came down to one question. This is Jamil. How could you forgive him? The question goes beyond what you might think. To understand why people had such a hard time believing I could actually forgive Andrew, you have to understand the culture in which I grew up. On just a human level, people have trouble with forgiveness, but on the streets where I grew up, it's even tougher. Every day, you not only have to look out for yourself, but you also better be strong, or people are going to run right over you. Being strong means you avenge any wrong done to you. If someone hits you or pushes you, you have to push back harder. You don't just let things go because if you do, people won't stop pushing and taking until there's nothing left of you. When I battled God in Broadway Park, this is what I was fighting against. So when people asked how could I forgive Andrew, it wasn't just that they couldn't understand how I could turn loose of the hurt. They didn't understand how I could give up my payback, much less be friends with the guy. I've had a lot of conversations with people, and I always tell them the same thing. You've got to get God in there. In life, everything is not to be avenged. That's not ours to do anyway. Romans 12 says, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I told everyone who asked that I had to give everything over to God. 
I could not forgive Drew on my own, but God could do it. Some people looked at me as if those were just words. When I saw that look, I went even further. I told them to take a look at my life and the mess I made when I was in control. And notice how change came when I surrendered to God's control. I had those conversations while I still didn't have a house of my own and after I moved into the house in which I now live. I wasn't talking about a change in my circumstances, but a change in me. I stopped being the angry, hurt, keep-to-himself man that people had seen walking the back streets of Benton Harbor. When they see me now, they see a different me. I'm free, but I didn't do it. God did. We want that. Let us pray.